So this week I'm going to launch this new series, and the title of this new series is Acts Reenacted. The book of Acts is an amazing text which marks the next chapter in the life of the followers of Jesus Christ. In the Gospels we see the first chapter of the church's development, and in particular we see how it contrasted to the way God's people were doing things for 1500 or so years before that time. The Jews had taken the most educated people they could find and made them the spiritual leaders of the nation. Jesus took the foolish of the world in a bunch of Galilean fishermen and gave them spiritual leadership of the entire world. The Jews made access to God a slight possibility provided the right rules and rituals were faithfully observed to the letter. Jesus made access to God so possible that anyone with simple faith could approach God with full confidence. The Jews' doctrine and message reeked of control and abuse and even had tones of hatred and disdain for those outside of their message. Jesus' message was one of grace and truth and his delivery was always marked by love. There was, of course, the issue of atonement as well. Both Jews and Jesus agreed that sin was a serious issue which caused a separation between man and God. Through the ancient law, the Jews prescribed sacrificial lambs, and rightly so because God himself prescribed this. Bloodshed had to occur for sin to be atoned for in the eyes of God, for the wrath of God to be satisfied. Where the Jews and these new followers differed was the source of their lamb. While the Jews chose the best their paddock could supply, Jesus chose the best that heaven could supply, himself. We all know the story, don't we? Jesus died for our sins and rose again on the third day, paying for sin and defeating its ultimate consequence in death. So after all that background, we now pick up the story in Acts chapter 1. We'll start with verse 1 here. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for my gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go to heaven. 
Now, Jesus is clearly introduced in this text in his physically risen state. There's no illusions in play here. There's no metaphors. There's no word plays. It was Jesus risen and for 40 days making clear proof of his bodily resurrected state. He is speaking face to face with them. He is eating with them. He is teaching them. The time finally comes where Jesus is to be taken into heaven. And we see here that this is the moment that Jesus launches the church into its main and primary purpose. The purpose of the church is abundantly clear here. First up it is this, to remain and be faithful in the time between his ascension and his return, however long that will be. The Jews believed their Messiah would come and restore the kingdom of Israel to its proper owners, the Jews. They envisaged the restoration of a genuine kingdom based in Jerusalem where their God-placed Messiah would reign over the entire earth. Jesus continually spoke of his kingdom, but it was a heavenly one where the entire world would have access to this new sovereign king. It would not provide specific power to the Jews, or it would not put, it neither would have put them in a place of superiority. Since Jesus showed no desire to reign on earth and resisted times where the people thought about forcibly coronating him, the leading Jews surmised that he wasn't the Messiah that they anticipated. The disciples of Jesus were not coming up to speed either. They at least acknowledged Jesus as Messiah and were the closest of all those around Jesus to grasping the context when Jesus spoke about his kingdom. But even after his resurrection and seeing all that has gone on, they were still not quite getting it, hence their question in this text. But instead of setting a time and rallying his troops for the earthly takeover, he prepares them for his departure. Jesus did have a throne to occupy, and he did have a kingdom to continue building. But no one will see it until God's heavenly timetable was complete. In the meantime, the time that we know as the church age was established. It was not the lifetime of the disciples, and it was not the first century, not those alone. It was the as yet unspecified time from Jesus' ascension to Jesus' return. And friends, here's the wonderful clincher right now and food for thought for us today. That return has not occurred yet. That makes the space of time the apostles occupied the same one that we are occupying as well. The task set to the apostles and through the centuries appointed to us as well is to remain faithful as his body of believers, faithful to the message of the gospel, faithful to the teaching of Jesus, and faithful to the task set before us by our soon-to-be-realized king. This takes me to the other part of our church's clear purpose. And that is what Jesus has said here, to be his witness to the entire world. His instructions before departure were really clear. Disciples, stick around Jerusalem. Once I've physically ascended, the Spirit will descend and you can then be empowered witnesses. 
The Greek word for witness is martis, which is also the root word when we use the term martyr. It translates as one who can present as fact or affirm with confidence the things they have seen, heard, or know. In John 1.7, John the Baptist presented himself as one bearing testimony or martyrs of the coming light of the world. And in Acts 22, Stephen was spoken of as a faithful witness or martyrs who defended his faith even to death. In these verses, we see examples of a living witness as well as a dying witness in play. The idea that Jesus is presenting to his disciples is that although we will have our day-to-day lives to live with all the responsibilities that come with that, and if you look at it, Paul had a job to work as well. He built tents. He created his own livelihood. He had responsibility. Yet our highest priority is to live in pursuit of our heavenly appointed task of being a witness of Jesus Christ. Someone who willingly and confidently affirms the things they know concerning Jesus. We are to be happy living witnesses, but we are also willing to be dying witnesses as well. In that we die to ourselves and are willing for our lives to be interrupted for the cause of Christ. Whether the result is life or death, our lives are to be faithful witnesses, faithful martyrs for Jesus Christ. 25 years ago, a man named Steve Cowan allowed his life to be interrupted by witnessing to me in a random elevator at the nudge of the Holy Spirit. He could have gone about his business, but he didn't, and here I am today, a quarter of a century later. We are all here today because somebody allowed their lives to be affected by the concept of martyrs. We're a part of their life. Their time, their effort, and possibly even finance was lost in order to be a witness to you. The church has two clear purposes. Remain faithful and be a witness. So how does the church engage in its purpose? How does it get going? What kickstarts the process of a church setting itself apart for faithful witness and service? Well, the answer to that is alluded to in chapter 1 through what Jesus promised and then described in detail in chapter 2. Let's pick up the story. Verse 1 of chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these people who speak Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, 
Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Cretans and and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and they are saying they had too much wine. To be the faithful witness we are called to be, we need to start with Pentecost. The disciples who watched Jesus ascend were staying pretty tight. Perhaps it was out of fear of those that killed Jesus. Perhaps it was out of a shared experience that was so amazing that no one could understand what they'd gone through. Whatever it was, these disciples had managed to stick together. Chapter 1 verse 15 tells us that 120 believers had remained together at this time. This tight-knit group were in complete unity and were engaged in constant prayer. And we see this unified attitude going into the day of Pentecost. The early church had its origins in an atmosphere of unity and a practice of deep prayer which led to an amazing awakening. In Psalm 133, David writes this, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, the Lord makes this famous promise to Solomon. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Friends, it greatly matters how unified we are as a body of believers. Scripture tells us that it positions us for favor and blessing. In our text today, we see that the people were meeting in one accord. The Greek word here is homothumadon, meaning singleness of mind. Homos meaning same, and thumos meaning the mind. It was a place where everyone met together with a unified agenda. A unified focus, a unified expectation of God, and a unified expectation of each other. When that attitude is present in prayer and in worship, something truly amazing happens because God offers his blessing to such an environment. It also matters whether we pray or not, particularly as a corporate entity. When we meet with the view that we are all praying for the same things, we grow in our own unity as a result. When we come together with the same expectation in worship, when we come together with the same level and nature of anticipation, it's amazing how much we grow as a local assembly of believers in the process. We then read that this attitude carried over onto the day of Pentecost, which was the day that Jesus chose to powerfully make his spirit evident. Pentecost was a significant time. 
It was the middle of three prescribed feasts, and you can read about those in your own time in Deuteronomy chapter 16. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was celebrated at Passover. The Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Harvest, was celebrated at Pentecost, 50 days after the, pen, after the Passover. And the last feast was the, at the end of the grain harvest, and this was known as the Feast of Shelters. As Jewish tradition evolved, so did the significance of these feasts. Towards the end of the intertestament period, shortly before the birth of Christ, Pentecost was also observed as the anniversary of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, because it was determined as having happened 50 days after the Exodus. Both traditions are significant as we ponder the timing of this spirit encounter. First up, empowering the church through the Spirit readied the church for their own harvest. We read that when the Spirit came upon them, a number of different things happened, and one of them was for these uneducated Galileans to be able to utter the wonders of God in the languages of all those who had come to Jerusalem to worship. That's a great way to maximize your audience and get the word out, right? The Lord knew his marketing strategies. These festivals, beginning with Passover, were annual pilgrimages for devout Jews from all the corners of the world. They would come to worship and it was a time where their spiritual journey and their seeking nature was at its highest sensitivity. Despite where they came from, they were hearing about God in their native tongues. We understand the Roman church to have been established from this particular encounter when the Roman Jews took their newfound faith back with them. Not only did the language barrier get broken down, but so did the fear of the disciples. Through the Spirit empowering them, they were able to boldly proclaim the things that they had previously hid. Although the Galileans were reputed as a bit of a regnet group with poor diction in their own language, they were able to articulate the things they previously didn't understand in the language of the entire world. The end result at the end of chapter 2 is the first ever Christian revival. 3,000 people being added to the church on just day 1. In John 4, Jesus told the disciples to look at the harvest because it was white and ready. It wasn't green. It wasn't yellow or overbaked. It was white. At Pentecost, the day where harvesting was celebrated... They were empowered by the Spirit to truly begin reaping the white harvest of souls. Second, the Spirit falling dramatically ushered God's people into a new Sinai-type moment, a new spiritual era or a new way of life. We see three types of manifestation as the Spirit moved here. There was the sound of a strong wind which shook the place they were meeting. There was the appearance of fire over every person in the room and there was the voice where each occupant of that room was able to tell of God in that other language. Hebrews 12 tells us this, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was even what was commanded even if an animal touches this mountain it must be stoned to death the sight was so terrifying that Moses said I am trembling with fear but you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem 
You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that Jesus speaks, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, from the Mount Sinai, the law of God was proclaimed. And we read in Hebrews here that through their traditions, they worked out that it was accompanied by wind, fire, and voices. At Pentecost, where the completed law of the Lord would be proclaimed, it too was accompanied by wind, fire, and a voice. In Luke 3.16, John the Baptist taught that Jesus would baptize his followers with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The Greek word for spirit is pneuma or wind. Wind throughout the Bible is synonymous with power. And fire is associated with purity and with boldness. The combination combination of these two things empowers us to use our God-given voice. It has been noted that ever since the early church fathers, commentators have seen the blessing of Pentecost as a deliberate and dramatic reversal of the curse of Babel. At Babel, human languages were confused and the nations were scattered. In Jerusalem, the language barrier was supernaturally overcome as a sign that the nations would now be gathered together in Christ. At Babel, earth proudly tried to ascend to heaven, whereas in Jerusalem, heaven humbly descended to earth. I'm going to bring this time to a close together here today. But I wanted to share perhaps what God has put on my heart concerning the church here in our own town of Wangaratta and what I, why I'm going down this particular path now. Why am I doing a study on the series of uh, a series on the on the book of Acts at this point? And I've wrestled with God over this and felt this is the direction to truly go. And here it is: the Church of Wanga, uh, Wangaratta, has been on a reenacted gospel journey. Look, it's no secret the history that our church has had in the last five years. The Church of Wangaratta as a whole has had a bit of a dotted, peppered history. There's something that's not very that we shouldn't always we shouldn't really be proud of what's gone on as a church. We've seen splits, we've had pastors that have abused power, we've had pastors that have morally fallen, we've had uh, church splits, we've had church revolts, we've had uh, all these different things go on. It's, been, it's happened uh, as a local thing, it must be a spiritual thing that has gone on over a period of time. And our own church has been victim of that as well, and we know that. And you guys have been open to me about how that has gone. But I believe over the last few years, we've gone from the people of God losing their way and Christians being disillusioned and leaders being abusive. We've come out of that time into a time where Jesus was kind of bringing himself into the Jewish race. They were in the same spot. Abusive leadership, disillusioned followers, loads of different things going on, people disengaged with God. Then Jesus came in. And the gospel story is all about the recovery that he brought to the people of God so that they could step into what God had for them. You know what? Through 
Reverend Graham Smith that we've had at this church and other pastors stepping into the, the gaps that have been in other churches around the place. I believe over the last three to five years, the church has gone on a recovery period. The Gospels is all about the people of God coming through recovery, and I believe we've done the same thing. We've reenacted the Gospels. And now, the most logical way forward, the most, the, the, the most likely way forward for all the churches to grow and for all the people of God to actually step into something that the, the next wave of what church life looks like in Wangaratta is not to start playing musical chairs with all these believers trying to convince believers to come to their church. Not trying to outmarket all the other churches, but instead reenact the book of Acts. The book of Acts is all about first-time encounters. About new people having first-time encounters with Jesus. And we're going to cover the book of Acts and look at all the first-time ways that people heard. All these people that had heard about Jesus for the very first time. And how dramatically the church grew in that period. We're going to look at first-time encounters because I believe that is our next phase. The dust has settled. Christians are settled. Everyone's found their place. Now it's time to engage with the people that don't know Jesus yet and tap into them. The Gospels, we see Jesus brought recovery to the Jews and restored them to their intended purpose. He reset their thinking and he relaunched their campaign to be the light to the Gentiles they were supposed to be. Acts is a place where Jesus empowers us with the required skills he removes the training wheels and he lets go of the bike and lets us ride this thing all by ourselves and he's looking for us to keep riding we've recovered now it's time to ride with what Jesus has given us there's a big wide world out there that needs to be saved and we as the church have been given a supernaturally empowered voice to help them see their need of a saviour the catch is though that some of us may need to find that again that empowerment again and that's where Pentecost kicks in there's an old chorus that we used to sing years ago fire the holy fire is this the fire we need today fire the holy fire oh send it down oh lord we pray fire the holy fire to burn up all our sin and dross send it down oh lord we need another Pentecost Church, friends, brothers and sisters, it's time for another Pentecost. It's time to come to a place where we are in one single accord. Where we all come with one expectation of encounter with Jesus. And where form and style and all those other things which we've made unnecessarily theological go out the window. And instead we come with one desire to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Unity in the church takes us to the place where we come under God's blessing. Lack of unity does the complete opposite. And frankly, this city has seen too much of that fruit. It's also time to launch ourselves in corporate prayer. We're a decent-sized church here. But right now, only a few people meet through the week to pray for our church and for our city. 
This morning, only a few people paused to pray that we would all encounter Jesus in today's service. The church is open all week. And there's 12 keys in circulation. There's plenty of opportunity to be able to come together and to create times to pray. The coffee pot can always be put on. The cat machine is there to be used. If we wish to be a truly missional, outward-focused church, then prayer throughout the whole church is an absolute necessity. This is a public call for more people willing to meet and pray. Where can you merge in on that? Every significant revival in church history came on the back of a move of prayer. It's also time to open ourselves up to the wind and fire of the Holy Spirit. The empowering, emboldening and purifying work of the Holy Spirit. I'm not specifically talking about speaking in tongues. Look, to be honest, this particular encounter, I don't believe is actually that specific gift of tongues that everyone talks about anyway. I'm not pushing for any out there charismatic gift. God distributes all those as he sees fit. And I refuse to force people to go down a path they don't wish to go in this. Friends, I do respect our conservative nature. And even though I have Pentecostal roots, I do, I, I, I do consider myself a, a conservative guy as well. What I am pushing for us to pursue is the voice that the Spirit generates within us. He can take the most uncouth and uneducated Galilean lips and empower them to articulate the most amazing wonders of Jesus. Will we let the Spirit in and use the voice that he gives us. The church started with Pentecost, the day of the new move of God and the celebrated new harvest. Our harvest awaits, and our voice as a church is there to be spoken. Will we allow the power of Pentecost to affect us the same way? Let's pray.